Hello and welcome to Internal. It's the fortnightly CSIRO podcast where we talk about breaking science discoveries from around the world, Australia, and inside the CSIRO. I'm Jesse Hawley and I'm joined by Sophie Schmidt. Hello. And our producer, Adrian Walton. Hello, hello. Good afternoon. How How's are you? Going? Well, it might not be afternoon when someone's listening to this. I bet it is. Yeah, okay. Maybe, it, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's evening. Today we'll be chatting about the evolution of nose shape, glass animals, Ooh. why water splashes, sheep with Fitbits. And later, we've got a special guest from CSIRO, Ken McColl, joining us to tell us about the monumental plan to introduce carp herpes to the feral carp in our native river systems. I knew what was coming up, and I'm still really impressed by our introduction. <laughs> well, I didn't, and I'm confused. <laughs> Evolution of the nose. Yeah. Mm. Incredible. Mine's, I find mine very functional, which is what I like about my nose. <laughs> Me too. Let's I can move smell on. things. I can breathe through it. So? I can occasionally pick it. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's pick the first topic. Research published in PLOS Genetics, in case anyone wants to have a read, analysed why we have our different nose shapes. Uh, so you might be thinking you get your nose from your parents, or maybe back from your dad between his fingers and his thumb. Ah, got your nose. Got your nose. <laughs> uh, which is true, of course, but ultimately uh, our nose shapes, as with most things about us, have been shaped by the environment and by also... Uh, human choice, what we find sexually attractive, or what tickled our great-grandparents' fancy. But uh, these researchers, they were anthropologists from Penn State University, analysed people's faces with 3D facial imaging. They uh, got images from people all around the world, uh, South Asia, East Asia, Africa, Northern European people, and they uh, looked at everything about the nose, the Mm -hmm. width of the nostrils, the width between the nostrils, and everything else, height, length, uh, sloping foothills, the whole kit caboodle. Yeah, so they looked at all the data, and they found some clear correlations. Also, when they plotted it from where the people are from. Mm-hmm. So um, what they found was in hot and humid climates around the equator of the Earth, people had wide nostrils. Okay, why is that? To let the heat out? And going to the top of the <laughs> Earth towards <laughs> Europe, they had uh, nostrils that were narrow. So the environmental reasons are... Uh, in the tropics, the air is warm and wet, humid, mm-hmm. all the water has been evaporated, and in the poles, it's cold and dry. So basically, We haven't really broken any new ground there with that sort of science news. No, we haven't. In fact, they've known that nostril width varies by latitude for a long while. What they haven't done is actually piece that together with evidence with um, right. photographs and people's faces okay. and things. So the reason is um, your nose's job amongst smelling and other things is to make... Holding glasses? I mean, spectacles, not, I don't mean like schooner glasses. <laughs> That's a good party trick. Yeah. Yeah. Schooner glasses. Yeah. <laughs> Look it's, what I can do. It's to make the air warm and wet and nice and uh, greeted by your lungs. Oh. So the lungs take in oxygen. They actually have to get the oxygen and pull it from the atmosphere into your bloodstream. And that's best done when there's water boundary in between. And if that gets dried out, if you're breathing in dry air, your lungs get dried out and they can't do oxygen exchange very well. So um, ah. the air goes in through your nose and through all of these little tubicles and it mm-hmm. gets um, the mucus in there, wettens it up, yep. so then it's humid air, so it can actually go into your lungs properly and also warms it up, otherwise your lungs would freeze. So um, the noses in mammals are very convoluted. Uh, owls not so much, they're quite short because normally we rely on our eyes instead. But um, if you breathe... If you, you mean other mammals? What's that? Yeah, I mean, other mammals. I, yeah. So, yeah. I, I don't mean to correct the, the real science guys. I mean, I've been doing this for like a month now, so... <laughs> Yeah, so I'm pretty good. Have you been studying? <laughs> I haven't. 
<laughs> so, um, primates. I will make that clearly very, very obvious later on, I'm sure. I can't wait. So, primates um, have short, flat faces because they rely on their eyes a lot more than their sense of smell. Right, okay. But um, if you overload your insides with lots of cold stuff, like eating ice cream, your body says, hey, you're breathing in, you've got to warm up the air as it comes in. So, it'll, it'll dilate all the blood vessels inside your nose. And that will hurt. And that's what a brain freeze is. So it's um, oh, your right. body trying to heat up the air too fast. Oh, wow. So, mm, so uh, the earth shapes uh, your nostril width and also what would have been... So have you, so living close to the equator, as you mentioned there in the tropics, places like that where you've got the wider nostrils, was it? Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay. So why <coughs> do they need a wider nostril compared to someone who's living closer to the North Pole? Good question. Should have said that at the mm, beginning. Yeah. yeah. At the uh, at the top of the earth. <laughs> I, I got you. <laughs> where the the nostrils are nice and narrow, smaller amounts. The of reason air. Jesse's voice went a bit funny though is because he put his hands in front of his face to uh, to actually show how big. I've got big nostrils. Have you seen? Show me. One of my earliest memories <laughs> well, is of uh, being in kindergarten and my teacher saying, "Well done," because I had I fit two fingers inside one nostril. <laughs> wow, that's great. There's a party trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so the narrow nostrils means that when air comes in, uh, it. It's got more contact with the mucous membranes up inside your sinus, mm-hmm. so it gets warm and wet quicker and more right. effectively. The wider ones means more air f- flow passes through, and um, it's less important. Right. But one another theory that they had was um, there's a thing called genetic drift in evolution, which is um, some features are just arbitrary and random. Whoever gets there first and proliferates and mm-hmm. populates the area, whatever traits they had when they rocked up, that happens. Like, have you seen people who walk in an elevator and they, if they look at the back of the elevator with the doors behind them, every subsequent person will copy them? Mm. Really? Yeah. Or if you get in, or looking for a bus a... as well. If someone gets up and looks for a bus, everyone stands up and looks. Yeah. Or the, the elevator who, thing. Who, but who gets in an elevator and looks at the back? Nothing. Unless it's one of those ones that's got the other door and you know that your floor has the door that opens on that side. Yeah, or a glass back and maybe uh, looking at your nostrils. What sort of a weird person gets in backwards? I don't know, but if you do, people copy you. So that's the... that's the uh, Makes gen- them even weirder, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> carry on. This isn't science, rather. It's the uh, genetic drift effect. So they thought that there is some degree to that of nose shape. So if a certain group of people with some characteristics uh, colonise the earth and then populated, they will have the type of uh, features of the original people who got there in the first place. Right. Um, yeah, that's it. Rather than it... Um, yeah, evolution taking over and things changing but due to environment. Yeah, that happens after this genetic drift effect. Yeah, right. Did you just explain all of human evolution by people, the metaphor of people standing in a lift? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> okay, cool. Is that an M. Night Shyamalan film? <laughs> <laughs> I think my nose is bleeding. It's trying to process this. <laughs> now Sophie's going to tell us about the ballsiest animals in town. Tardigrades are a group of animals. They're 500 million years old. Wow. At least. That's the earliest known fossil. That's almost half a billion. Half a billion, indeed. They're pretty short. They're pretty plump. They have eight legs with four to eight claws on each leg. What? They're also microscopic. This is crazy. So there's some, like, samurai octopus. Yep. And they're everywhere. They're in your backyard. They have been found on the highest mountains in the Himalayas, uh, in the water where they like to splash around. Um, (laughs) Where they like to holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're also known as water bears or moss piglets. Uh, Um, What's your favourite name out of those two? I think Um, water bears. Moss piglet. Moss piglet. Piglet. Oh, okay. Moss piglet. Just imagining this sort of freakish looking piglet that's got green shit all over its face. (laughs) (laughs) We... um, 
at university, we looked for them in the moss outside mm-hmm. and found them. Really? Just like swimming around. Uh, but they're microscopic. Oh, yeah, microscopes. How do you go about and find things like that that are microscopic? Do you just go and scoop up a bit of yeah, moss well, and then take that back to your lab and look under the microscope? Or? N- now's good. It's raining and um, they live in moss and moss thrives when it, it's wet. Mm-hmm. And the tardigrades um, swim around in the moss and they, they draw the nectar or draw the sorry um, sap from inside the moss. And you collect it up, take it inside. If it hasn't been raining, you wet it, leave it for a day. And then wring out the moss and then collect the water. With your hands? We're yeah. not using special instruments here? Yeah, squeeze it out, whatever. Yeah. And then uh, get a microscope. That's the, that's the tricky part. Okay. Off, off eBay, maybe. <laughs> and uh, have a look in the water. And Bob's your uncle probably have some tardigrades. Right. Oh, okay, so in the water that you've wrung out of the moss? Yeah. They'll be in that? Yeah, swimming around, looking for more moss. So they'll be in this room right now? Maybe. No, they're in... No, they... Leaf litter, moss. See, I look at that and I think there's something that live in carpet. I think it's too dry because they swim through fluid, like their movement. That's how they get about. Yeah, it's like doggy, do- doggy paddle. <laughs> well, the cool thing legs. is that they could survive extremely dry conditions. They enter this state of extreme resting where they're basically dormant. Sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. Water so, bears. Yeah. Water bears. If they're extremely dehydrated, sometimes they need an hour to wake up and okay. come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Long me night. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Tardigrade are so unique and diverse that... All the animals with backbones, like birds, reptiles, you and me, they're in one phylum. And like last week, last episode, we were talking about arthropods. Mm-hmm. That's another phylum. Tardigrades have their own phylum. Wow. Right, because so they have like 900 species in species. that group. Yeah, yeah, they're so old and unique that they can't even be placed in. I think they're most similar to arthropods, maybe. But um, yeah, they're in their own camp. Can't you just picture them bumbling around through space and time? <laughs> through black holes? <laughs> through different dimensions. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're pretty hardy creatures. It's thought that they could withstand extreme temperatures slightly above absolute zero to far above boiling. Wow. Extreme amounts of radiation, uh, more than any human with- could withstand. Uh, pressure around six times more than found in the deepest parts of the ocean. It's and so, also in space. It's so unnecessary. <laughs> so what, what do these guys do? What's their point? Other than just winning at everything. They're essential part of the ecosystem. Things like eating them. They like eating other things. Yeah. There's like carnivorous ones, herbivorous ones. Now you're going to tell me they eat like elephants or something. They've got <laughs> a big straw in their face and uh, like, and they just... You're having me on. They, they shove you it... You two have absolutely made this up. <laughs> they, they shove it into a plant stem. It's like, um, you know, if you eat Japanese bubble tea with the little pearls in it. Yeah, they yeah, got yeah. that huge straw. That's, what, that's like sucking up the stuff in the... They can eat, only eat circular-shaped things. <laughs> yes, spheroids. We haven't, we haven't done this before on Interanauts, but I'm actually going to Google it because I don't know if you have me on or not. They're primarily water-dwelling creatures, um, but they, yeah, they can survive pretty much anywhere, and that's the cool thing about them. Up until now, scientists thought that they survived the absence of water by relying on this sugar, uh, and that sugar is called... Trellahose, which other animals use, like nematodes, some kind of shrimp, I believe some kind of frogs. Oh, really? Um, and that's part of a broader metabolic process, which is called cryptobiosis. That's where everything is slowed down, the metabolism to the point in which it's barely happening at all. It's barely worth talking about. Mean, okay. means a uh, hidden life, as if yeah, it's right. almost dead. Wow. The name tardigrade, <laughs> tardy means slow and grade is walking because they're the slow walkers. Yeah, right. So this whole idea about sugars, uh, Mm -hmm. extreme resting, was kind of turned around in a paper released last week in Molecular Cell. The lead researcher was from the University of North Carolina, and they found that uh, tardigrades don't actually produce enough trellahose to 
enter that extreme state of resting. Um, they only produce about 2% of their body weight of trailer hose compared mm-hmm. to other animals that produce about 20%. Pretty hefty. Um, Big difference. Yeah, pretty pitiful amount. <laughs> so they found instead tardigrades have a unique special tardigrade protein as if they weren't special enough. It, they use this <laughs> protein uh, to transfer, transform their body into a glass bead. A what? (laughs) A glass bead. That's what I thought you said. A glass bead. (laughs) This story was really hard to tell because tardigrades are a story in themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that scientists have been wondering why they can survive these long periods of drying out. They Mm -hmm. can go without water for 30 years and then just need a little splash and they're back in action an hour later. (laughs) Literally action. They've been observed getting it on after 30 years of sleeping. Wow. Yeah. Sounds pretty good, you know. <laughs> like, if life turns to shit, you've got that to fall back on. Turn into a glass statue. Well, <laughs> Did you guys want to know how they turn into no. glass? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they use this cool protein, which now has a name. It's called a tardigrade-specific intrinsically disordered protein, TDP for short. Um, most proteins actually have a form, a shape, a 3D structure. This protein doesn't. It's jelly-like in the water, i.e. when tardigrades are their usual selves. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe their unusual selves. Who can predict them? Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're feeling out of sorts yeah. all the time. So why do they turn themselves into glass? Well, when there's no water, they still want to survive, right? Oh, so this is what they do for their 30 years is just go, I'm yeah. going to be a glass bead. Yeah, so they, they can survive, yeah, the absence of air, um, any pressure. They can survive under ice. They make Matt Damon in The Martian look ridiculous. The tardigrade would just like live on Mars for 30 years, wake up, <laughs> like go camping, and then let's like swim through space. <laughs> um, they just basically cryogenically frozen, wake up 30 years later. And they later. do it all themselves. Yeah, go back to whatever they were doing if they can remember. Also, if they could locate exactly what that is through further research, they could use that to splice into things that better humans mm. Because that's ultimately what science is about. But there's other things that we rely on that we uh, cool down to try and preserve, but maybe we could just dry them out instead, like Like vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) Time for some CSIRO news. Researchers found a low-carbohydrate diet that lowered the severity of type 2 diabetes, or the medications you require to treat it. And this week, we also did a story about researchers. They've... uh, Equipped flocks of sheep with Fitbits. What? And uh, did I hear that correctly? Sheep are always. What's it, are they giving out points now in the science community for doing weird experiments? <laughs> <laughs> sheep are always moving between paddocks ten times a year. Lots of different grasses. They're teaching their babies, their baby lambs, um, what to eat, how to eat. They mm-hmm. got babies inside them. <laughs> <laughs> babies, babies, lambs, <laughs> lemmy babies. There are seventy-four million sheep in Australia. The tasty ones. And it's hard to keep track of the welfare of all these animals. Farmers typically uh, keep an eye on them. They've got a gist of where animals are. Mm-hmm. But uh, logistically, it's a nightmare. So farmers from Western Australia uh, volunteered their sheep to CSIRO scientists. They volunteered their own sheep to science. Yeah, well... That's very cl- noble. Exactly. Uh, clearly, it's a problem because um, keeping tabs on all these animals that you've got under your purview, you're like a uh, shepherd. Mm. You are a bit, aren't you? There's not wolves, but there's lots of fables about it. Clearly, um, 
it's tough keeping keeping an eye on the flock. No, but wolves wolves are a problem. Or not wolves, but foxes, things like that are a problem. Dingoes, right up. Dingoes. Stay tuned. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. You've got a fox on the horizon. Um, so the farmers volunteered their sheep. They fit them with the GPS. Did they strap it to their arm, their wrist? No, it was placed uh, just behind the shoulders. The device was handcrafted by the scientists that okay. combined a bunch of things. They did use a commercial product. Okay. Whose name I won't mention. Right. In conjunction with other technology, and not only did it have the GPS, it also had an accelerometer to say how fast the animals are moving, uh-huh. where they're going. It, it had the same functionality as a smartphone or a tablet. Yeah, right. So, um, needed to know whether it's upright or not, so I can flip the screen. It's like that with sheep, so they presumably know if they take a tumble down a hill, <laughs> or if uh, you put them on lock so they don't rotate anymore. <laughs> anyway, so uh, the researchers, when they got the data back. Um, I'm not sure of counting all the, the sheep dot points if it sent them to sleep or not. But when they looked through the data, they found <laughs> out more information than that were actually previously thought they were going to get. So they could find out how much exercise they're getting, different areas of the paddocks that they enjoy eating from. They could keep an eye on predation from dingoes. They could keep an eye on escaping sheep and sheep theft, which um, wow. it's a problem. I haven't uh, thrown a sheep under my arm and taken a walk, but I guess if you've got the data point in the tracker, you can see... Dot point is whizzing off at 60 k's an hour yeah. mm. uh, down the road. So why limit it to sheep? Strap a Fitbit on everything, I say. Yeah, well, it is. Track <laughs> they are. Yeah. Find them. Just track everyone. Give them a talking to. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. I'll go tell them. <laughs> um, no, it's an exciting development, and they're just trying to fine-tune the equipment and make it cheaper to develop before they can. the farmers can decide whether to fit out their flock with yeah, a wow. complete shipment. Um, shipment. Shipment. Indeed. They have to make it cheaper before they can do it. Wow. We've got them all here. (laughs) This is why they pay us the big bucks. Yeah. We're about to speak with Dr. Ken McColl about the plan to combat invasive carp with a strain of carp herpes. But before we do that, let me catch you up on the situation. Here in Australia, the common carp is a devastating pest. The carp were introduced over 100 years ago but became a problem in the 60s. Big problem, with a particular strain escaping and spreading through the Murray-Darling Basin. And the Murray-Darling Basin is one of the most important freshwater bodies in Australia, where all our food comes from. Carp have messed everything up big time. They breed fast, and they're a pain in the best to remove. A single female produces... A <laughs> <laughs> I thought that much of how it would work. <laughs> the answer, not very well. <laughs> A single female produces a million eggs a year, and in some parts of the basin, the invasive carp can pose up to 90% of fish weight. So a research collective came up with a plan to remove them by introducing a naturally occurring herpes virus that kills only this species. CSIRO has been researching this herpes virus for around 10 years, and one of its foremost researchers is Dr. Ken McColl. Let's ask him some questions. Our first question, Ken, um, since the introduction of carp, what have been the cumulative effects on Australian native species? I'm not sure that we can correlate directly carp with declines in native species, Sophie. And it's really only been since the 90s that there have been some really solid work done both in Australia and overseas. And, and certainly it appears that there is some effect on reproduction of our native species, among other things. Having a such a destructive pest be a fish in the water, now that we know post that 90s research that it is indeed the carp. It's a bit abstract for uh, the layperson to imagine 
how a feral animal could create so much destruction that it's almost obscured by the water. It's not on the land like a regular pest that we would imagine. Is there a comparison or a like an ecological uh, analogy you could give for us that would be on the land? Um, I suppose the aquatic environment is unique, isn't it? Obviously, um, compared with the land. Um, and and the problem really, Jesse, is that all rev- revolves around the nature of the way the carp feed, um, sucking up mud from the bottom of the of the river, sifting out any food that's there, and then squirting out the mud back out into the river. And so very quickly you get a muddy, turbid appearance in the water. And that then has cascading effects on plant life, invertebrate life like worms and insects and so forth. And, and ultimately um, it affects bird life too because, you know, there, there's no long... There's reduced plant life and, and uh, invertebrate life for them to feed on. So they really exert quite a major effect on, on our river system. It's almost like uh, taking the ecosystem in the globe and shaking it all up. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, that's right. I mean, you're moving all that mud off the bottom and uh, putting it in, in, the, in the water right throughout the, the water, and it, it really has major consequences. Uh, Ken, can you tell us uh, briefly what are the next steps in um, introducing the strain into our waterways? Do you know when we can uh, expect to hear a response from government? Uh, it's been a long process, Sophie, as you, as you would expect. Um, it's not a trivial thing to go releasing what we call an exotic virus or a foreign animal disease virus into a new environment like ours. So it's required a heck of a lot of work. And we are getting close to, to the end of the necessary work, but there's still a bit to do. You know, there's a tentative hope I think more than anything else that originally we were aiming for sometime in 2017 that's not going to happen now we're looking more like uh, 2019 now before we could realistically hope that this virus might be released but that assumes we get all the rest rest of the work done and then uh, the support of government to release the virus. Excellent. Uh, we'll try not to do too much rehashing, but if lit- listeners are unfamiliar with the project, two concerns that I imagine would spring to their mind first would be, could the virus spread to people and could it spread to other native species? And you've done a lot of research on that. Could you describe why that's not so likely in the context of the herpes virus itself? Yeah, well, in general, herpes viruses, unlike the sort of public perception of a herpes virus, it seems to, the term very term seems to cause fear um, when people talk about herpes viruses. We've all had cold sores. Yeah. (laughs) But in fact, every species, um, essentially every species that we know has its own one or two or more herpes viruses. And generally, they're very, very specific for the the, um, species that they're found in. So... um, Rex Hunt can continue uh, kissing the fish and throwing them back, so to speak. Yes, that's right. He, he should be able to do that with impunity, uh, Jesse. There's no problem there. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of work, but I mean, probably the simplest way of looking at it is that this virus has been around now for, for over 20 years. It's devastated carp farming enterprises overseas, where carp, in fact, are a very important source of protein. And so people have had to go in and clean up that mess and... So obviously people have been in very close contact with this virus 
And yet there's absolutely no evidence that anyone has ever been affected by this virus. What about the concern about uh, maybe close related or cousin species of native fish in the ecosystem getting it? Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, if viruses like a herpes virus, for example, do, if they were to cross into another species, then we know that that um, jump into another species is almost invariably into a very closely related species. So the thing that we've got going for us in Australia in that regard is that there are no other cyprinid fish in Australia. So cyprinids are the group of fish that, to which carp belong. And there are no native cyprinids in Australia. Um, mm. the, close, the most closely related fish are our native catfish, uh, of which there are a number of species and we've tested the susceptibility of two of those species to the virus and found them to be uh, completely refractory to disease. Excellent. That's great news. Because you have a catfish yourself? I do. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine. He's in a little an island, so to speak. Actually, you know, you could joke about that, but they are the most beautiful little fish. Um, the ones we used were called salmon-tailed and eel-tailed catfish, and they are just little jokers in a tank. They they really are probably, I don't know how many people keep them as pets, but they are beautiful little fish, really uh, riveting. They <laughs> sure are. I think mine is a, a bristle nose. All right. I hope he's having a nice night. Good good evening, Quagsire. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the project is obviously great interest to the research community, given its scale and uh, its rigor. I think I read somewhere that it's maybe the longest, almost intensive research into a virus being released into uh, vertebrates, such that it's drawn a lot of attention in scientific literature, including recently a, a letter in Nature. Out of the concerns raised in uh, that publication, which one are you most concerned about, about the research project? Well, honestly, Jesse, we're not really concerned with any of them because it was a, it was a fairly um, speculative piece of writing uh, lacking any experimental support and in fact neither of the authors have had any previous history with this virus so I'm not really too sure how it got a Guernsey in it was in it was actually in Nature Ecology and Evolution still um, a pretty important publication and um, yeah so we've just sent off our um, response to their letter and uh, We've been informed that it's now in press, so it'll be coming out fairly shortly. Uh, Ken, I understand that you've been working on this particular project for over eight years, coming up to close to 10 years. Yes, that's right. Can you tell us, have you seen any changes in the public perception or public attitudes over time towards the National Carp Control Plan? Oh, that's an interesting question, uh, Sophie. Um I'm a bit shielded from the general public. I've had, um, I've prob over the years, I've probably had a number of unsolicited emails, people just finding finding an email address and sending me comments, oh, um, mostly from residents of the Murray-Darling Basin, and they've all been um, uh, thoroughly supportive of, of what we're doing. 
they'd love to get rid of carp out of the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, speaking of that, if uh, if it were to work a treat or almost uh, miraculously and the carp suddenly disappeared 100%, uh, what would the ecosystem begin to look like? What sort of changes would we observe in uh, the water quality and the plant life and fish life? Oh, that's a bit of a, a an open-ended question, Jesse. I, um, for a start off, we have to address the 100% efficiency of the virus that's never going to happen and nor have we ever claimed that it's the complete answer to uh, to Australia's carp problems. Um, we know from other that the use of other um, viruses as biocontrol agents that a virus itself alone will never completely eradicate a pest species that the virus and and the target will eventually come to terms with each other and what we would expect is we just use the virus alone, carp would be reduced in numbers to something maybe 30 to 40% has been predicted by one group of their current level. So, so what, we're def- what we really want to do is try to introduce some other major broad-scale control mechanism to complement the effect of the virus and then we, we do expect to have a realistic opportunity for reducing carp numbers really significantly and, and making a really important difference. Is that and, the... and that would be manifested probably in clearer waters, um, increased plant life, invertebrate life. Uh, our native fish species would do a lot better, um, you know, just general improvement in our natural environment. How exciting and, uh, and good luck for the, the program and obviously its applications overseas. Okay, thanks, Jesse. Thanks very much for coming on Interronauts. Okay, thanks. thanks. Have thanks, a lovely Jessie day. and Sophie. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. So, Jesse, you've really got a pet catfish. Quagsire? Quagsire. Yeah, quaggy. I am not sure <laughs> if he's a male or female. Uh, well, a lot of fish change tell? sex, change gender during their life span. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, Quaggy. I can't ask a developer questionnaire. But um, he or she is destroying all the plants in the tank and been purchasing nice grasses and things to deck it out and make it nice and pretty and oxygenated. Yeah, wow. And um, every night, nocturnal, comes and eats them while I wake up. She's mugging on the grass like a biological lawnmower. Have wow. you had some talkings to them about it, the behaviour? <laughs> them. Them. Yeah, Stern. Fishy. I uh, are they like proteins. I've been trying to feed them uh, like beetle larvae, but just interested in the grass. A mathematician from the University of Warwick has figured out why some water droplets splash and others don't. What? Exactly. What? So, so there were some weird observations already before this guy stepped in and solved it for everyone, where air is less dense. It didn't solve it for me. <laughs> I wasn't bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, though. Well, I'll tell you why you might be bothered. Perhaps you work in forensics where there's blood splashing and you'll need to know where the DNA is, where the actual different incidents happen. I thought he was working on water, not blood. Uh, liquids. Perhaps you produce 3D printers and need to make uh, very specific equipment like hearing aids where you can't afford splashing of the 3D the ink. Mm. It has some, uh, what about good... like precision medicine operating? <laughs> we we, we drop it in. <laughs> Food diet. I dropped Oh, shit, I got three in. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, total blindness. Rather than curing what was wrong with me. So they knew that um, where the air is less dense, you get a smaller splash, outsplash. Where the air is more dense, you get more of a splashing effect. So how, where, where... how do you define splash? Yeah. Surely being a mathematician, there must be a measure. Splash is 
this plus this or yeah it is defined it's a um bits of the the single drop breaking off and the radius around that so if oh, you go to the top I always of... thought the, the splash was the so if you're dropping a drop into water I thought it was, it was the, the existing water jumping yeah it could be that or, or being... it could be if I if I dropped this onto the desk so it would be better to spill this glass of water at the top of Mount Kosciuszko than it would be to here it would splash less and cause less destruction on top of a mountain because there's less dense air right. so they knew that observation they didn't know why this mathematician, his name was James Sprittle, which is nice and onomatopoeic. I looked it up, and uh, splash is onomatopoeic from the word plash, from like water on water. So in Dutch, it's uh, plassen, and German, it's pluschen. Splash, universal. There you go. So Sprittle uh, looked not only at the dynamics of the droplet, say mm-hmm. the water, and the surface. He actually looked at the air molecules that separate them. So as you drop something through air... There's uh, molecules of oxygen, nitrogen, all these things mm-hmm. that compose air. They're all bouncing around. And the thing that's falling actually pushes them out of the way as yep. it goes. And um, the higher the density, the more there are. The mm-hmm. less the density, the fewer they are. When the droplet actually makes contact with a solid object, it's sandwiching all of these air molecules between it and the impact mm-hmm. surface. And at the very last moment, uh, the gap is one micrometer, mm-hmm. which I think is a millionth of a meter. Uh, the air can't get out of the way quick enough. Mm-hmm. It's just like squidged. And um, it actually stops the uh, droplet from impacting the surface and split, pushes the water out. And then that little buffer zone, that little blanket of air... Um, can keep, then escape. Can then escape. But as the water is splashing out on the smallest possible scale, the air molecules are bouncing and keeping the water up and actually causing a larger splash. Oh, right. That's so, why at the top of a mountain there are less air molecules to beat on the impending yeah. droplet and it splashes less, the, the splash. So the boundary layer of air when a droplet hits, a one millimeter droplet, is one micrometer in size. Mm-hmm. If you scale that up, uh, a boundary layer of one centimeter of air is enough to stop an impending tsunami. That's the, that's the ratio of a micrometer versus... Wow. Uh, this droplet. So oh, yeah. a micrometer is 50 times narrower than a human hair. I don't know why human hairs are always used as Why the, is that always the reference? Because I can't even have swimming pools. I can't even comprehend a human hair. A human hair in a swimming, <laughs> Olympic-sized swimming pool. Because I've got quite thin hairs. Yeah, what about Kelly hairs where the thickness changes throughout? Oh, does it? Yeah, it does. I think it should be something that's more tangible, like mm. it's... One like, bajillionth of a thumb or something. No, 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 no. What's, what's <laughs> what happened with, to my thumb? <laughs> what happened with the good old centimeter? I think they're trying to make it more tangible for somebody. But a human hair is so abstract. I don't care yeah. for it. It may as well, Who cares? But if you say to me it's a, a thousandth of a centimeter, well, I'm going to go, shit, that's pretty small. Yeah, a centimeter does stand alone, doesn't it? See? And now Sophie's going to tell us about a new paper that came out from CSIRO Publishing. Scientists from the University of Sydney have recently published a study that records the first instance of an Australian red fox uh, hanging Drawing. out in a tree. Hanging out in a tree? Drawing. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that would be pretty interesting. <laughs> Drawing pictures of foxes. <laughs> With love, love hearts between their parents. <laughs> Playing the a harpsichord. The sky is a line above. Yeah. And the, uh, the so sun's got a, a smiley face on it. Yeah. It was up a tree. We've known that foxes really like eating things on the ground and they like hanging out on the ground. Mm-hmm. They have a pretty <laughs> I, devastating effect on Australian animals and biodiversity. And, and conversely, they're not so good in the air. <laughs> well, not flying foxes. Not, not flying foxes. The natives, though. They're really good at flying. <laughs> yeah. Not so well on the ground, though. <laughs> not so, so well they on should, the ground. They should team up. 
Super Fox. Yeah, foxes were introduced to Australia. Um, someone thought it was a great idea in 1855 to bring them over from Europe uh, mm-hmm. just to use them for recreational hunting. Awesome. Since then, they've almost wiped out, I'm sure, several um, species. Yeah, you think about all the little marsupials we've got. Yep. Don't have. Had. Yeah. Uh, the bilby, mm. um, ground nesting birds like the night parrot and even reptiles like the green turtle have all suffered the devastating blows of the red fox. It's otherwise known as Volpe's Volpe's. Uh, scientists from the University of Sydney, they were actually uh, studying koalas by um, putting some cameras in trees mm-hmm. and also putting in a little water fountain in the um, point in which the tree splits, the branches split. A fork. A fork. The fork of tree branches. <laughs> they put a fountain in there. <laughs> Not a fountain. A bubbler. I think you imagine. It's an artificial water station. Like a, a fountain. fountain. <laughs> <laughs> like a fountain in a shopping centre. What are those naked boys peeing? Have you seen those fountains? <laughs> koala. Um, I don't know what that original study was about, but it turned into another paper instead because... <laughs> like water coolers. <laughs> up, tra- up eucalyptus trees for yeah. koalas. Hey, have you watching the new series on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> no, gum leaves me. What are all these cameras doing here? Do you think they're filming us? Do you think yeah. we're going to be on Netflix next? True koala show. <laughs> Um, yeah, but on these infrared camera footage, is uh, they found some uh, sightings of foxes up the tree unexpectedly. Um, also, yeah. So there were two scenarios: one in which a koala had been up the tree five days ago. Um, it had taken a very specific route up the tree, and a fox came along and was sniffing it very carefully. Lots of sniffing, and it seemed to follow the same the trace of the koala because it wow. took the same path up the tree. Keen. Yeah. And chillingly, um, a few kilometers away, um, oh, the fox wasn't interested in the water fountain, so oh, okay. it had its, its It didn't sort of throw else. a coin behind its head and <laughs> for good luck. <laughs> a few kilometers away, a fox had a little less interest in the tree, perhaps the koala. It, they don't know how it got up there. The camera didn't capture it. It might have jumped. Um, I'm not Might sure what else <laughs> <laughs> it might have gotten up there. The fox, in this case, also bypassed the water fountain. Um, so in this other tree, uh, there was actually a koala still up there mm-hmm. while the fox was in the same tree. So this is the third tree or the second tree? Second tree. tree. Um, but uh, two animals, same tree. There was no predatory action. Oh, that's good. So the so, fox wasn't interested in the koala. Well, Which is a, a I think they need to do further research to determine if the foxes are going up there. They didn't look particularly malnourished. They looked to be in good health. Um, they, I, won- I wonder if they they can smell the koala urine and get excited because they can smell it's some sort of mammal prey potential. Mm. And they actually met a hefty koala in a tree and it's like, whoa, I don't think I'm fit for this. Well, there were plenty of other things around that it could have eaten. They, they observed lots of mice and other... Oh. Foxy creatures. Um, they're wondering how foxes have this ability to even get up trees at all. In Europe, the trees um, are pretty smooth and flimsy branches. Mm-hmm. Australian eucalypts have lots of bumps, so they sort of use it like indoor rock climbing, I guess. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, Little novels. But they've got claws, don't they? Doesn't a fox have claws? So you think they maybe they haven't got the dexterity to sort of grip. Yeah. Mm. And then how do you eat something at the same time while you're up there? That's something they need to find out. Get me up a tree and throw me a hamburger. Let's I wonder if they could uh, just knock it off onto the ground and then pick it up there. 
Mm. Well, yeah, one idea, I'm not sure if you guys mentioned... Is Surely koalas would be built to withstand falls from trees, though. Yeah, and the fox can take it on the ground. You reckon the fox has got it covered on the ground? I don't know if a fox could take a koala. They're large they're animals. Big, they're big boppers, They're robust. Yeah. Well, some of them. But that story? Especially the big ones. They're unsuspecting, I think. It's easier to dislodge something up a tree um, than to try and catch something on the ground because they're pretty much programmed to escape your clutches and run. Yeah, if it's sleeping, which, you know, classically they are doing. They do a lot mm. of that, don't they? They do. Fox can get you. Um, so it's a it's a cool story. Uh, previously, there have been lots of anecdotal sightings of foxes up trees. This yeah, is right. the first recorded evidence. There you go. Foxes Good up trees. Yeah. Bit of science to back up the uh, the claims. Mm. And if it's if they look into it further, yeah, obviously it will have devastating effects for the rest of the animals that foxes haven't eaten. That's it. Another episode of Interronauts. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to give us a rating on iTunes. If you have anything you'd like to ask, send us a tweet at CSIRO News or on our Facebook page. Thanks again and bye-bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.